We often lose perspective on life. You know, we think based on our circumstances that things are either much better than they really are or much worse than they really are. And in today's passage, James encourages us to see reality properly. So listen now to God's holy and inerrant word. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and let the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise You for Your amazing grace. And in Your amazing grace, it is that You have sent Your only Son in order that we might have life in Him. And according to Your grace, You have provided for all of our needs. And so we return now to You what has come to us through your gracious hands. We pray that you would use the tithes and the gifts and the treasures of your people, that you would use them for your glory in this world, that you would use our gifts to sing your praise. And Father, we, um, we pray for ourselves as we place ourselves beneath your word this morning, that as we worship You as we hear You speak. You would be kind and gracious to us in that You would lead us to see Jesus, in that You would remind us of Your amazing grace, for it's in His name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. At this time, uh, the children ages three to first grade are dismissed to their children's church, so if you make your way to the back of the sanctuary, you'll be taken to your children's church class. Um, For the rest of us, um, two weeks ago, we started a new series that's going to take us through the fall, through the book of James. And in James chapter 1, we found that James is teaching us about um, the hardness of life and life's trials. And James told us that trials will inevitably come into our lives, Um, and they're necessary. These trials are necessary, he's told us, for our growth and for our maturity to be made complete and whole. Um, He's told us that we need wisdom in order for us to grow in the midst of our trials. You see, James, what what he's doing in this uh, first chapter is he wants us to see, he wants us to see and view the hardness of life and its trials a certain way. Um, And that's the only way we'll be able to, as he says in verse 2, only if we can see our life, the hardness of life and its trials a certain way, can we uh, count our trials joy in this life. Um, So he's giving us a particular vantage point uh, for seeing and understanding the hardness of life. Um, Several years ago, um, there was a movie called Vantage Point. Uh, I don't know if anybody saw it. Uh, It really wasn't that that great. it had Dennis Quaid and that other guy from the TV show Lost, um, whatever his name was. Um, 
Anyway, um, it wasn't a great movie, but its title was perfect um, because the story being told in the movie was really just about 15 minutes long or so. Um, and even though it was brief, it had the necessary drama. Uh, what, was, what the story was was that there was an attempted assassination on the president when he was on foreign soil, and that was the story, 15-minute long story. And initially, that story seems pretty simple, um, but the movie was true to its title, and so that 15-minute story was played over and over and over again from the different vantage points of the characters in that movie. And when you're watching this movie, each time you see the story from a different angle or a different vantage point, you catch yourself thinking, well, this changes everything, right? Um, now that you see it from this angle, from this vantage point, it changes everything about the way you view the different characters, the way you understand the plot, um, the way you discern their motives. Um, it changes the way you see the story. And in James 1, verses 9 through 12 that we read just a moment ago, it's as if James was writing to us, and he's saying, I want to give you a different vantage point for seeing life's trials, right? And he's saying, if you can see life from this vantage point, it changes everything. It changes everything about the way you see your own story in life unfolding. And so to do this, James, he gave us a case study of two contrasting trials in life, poverty and wealth. And already that's a unique vantage point um, because, okay, poverty, we get that that's a trial. But how is it that wealth and affluence could be a trial, right? Um, we're going to talk about that, but here's what's great about these verses for us this morning. Um, James is also, in these verses, he's giving us some very significant clues on how to see all of life from the vantage point of the gospel. And so, we're going to talk about three things this morning. We're going to talk about how poverty can be a trial, how wealth can be a trial, and then finally, we're going to talk about how to use the gospel vantage point in our trials. So first, how poverty can be a trial. The word lowly that shows up in that first verse we read, um, it can mean poor or insignificant, uh, unimportant, right? But James, did, he didn't elaborate on it much. In fact, uh, when he's speaking about the lowly, they get this one short little verse in comparison to the two verses for the rich or the wealthy. Um, and I think the reason is pretty simple and straightforward. Um, See, for you and I to arrive at the vantage point where we see lowliness and poverty and insignificance as a trial, it, it, doesn't, um, it doesn't cause us a huge leap or a huge stretch in our imaginations. It's just kind of like, uh, yeah, poverty is a trial. It's difficult. Um, you know, a significant refrain or chorus as we've been looking at this first chapter in James has been this. Um, just because we all inevitably face trials in life doesn't mean that trials in life will inevitably grow us up and mature us and complete us and make us whole. Um, see, the key for James from, from the very beginning has been how you handle the trial. That's everything. And that's why he wrote in verse 4, let steadfastness 
have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And he comes right back to that chorus or that refrain in verse 12 of our passage this morning when he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. He's saying, if you're steadfast in your trial, that is, if you are unmoved, if you are unshaken, because you have anchored your life to Jesus… If you have done that, then life's trials will grow you up and mature you. Trials will come into your life, and you'll find yourself growing in kindness and in compassion and in strength and in joy, and on and on we could go. But if you aren't steadfast, James is saying, if your identity, in other words, isn't anchored to Jesus, right, and you've put your hope in life, into any of life's fragile circumstances then trials will come into your life and they will shake you to the core, right? And you'll find yourself in the midst of those trials being hardened, growing in anxiety and fear and bitterness and self-absorption. And it's not hard to see why or how um, lowliness can be a significant trial for anyone. Look, the word lowly is a great descriptive word for the kind of person James has in view. Because listen, when you are lowly, you are constantly looking up at the world. And you are looking up at your friends and your neighbors, the people you go to church with, and the people in your neighborhood, and the kids you go to school with, and the parents of the kids at your school, right? You're looking up at them. And when you're looking up at them, they don't seem to have your trouble in life. Right? They, they're wealthy material, materially, maybe, and you're struggling to keep the lights on. They receive recognition, and you're constantly, you constantly seem to be passed over. Right? They seem to matter, and you don't seem to matter. They went to the beach this summer. You haven't been on a vacation in 10 years. They just bought a new car, and you've got to take the MARTA bus or whatever that is in Memphis you know, to get around. Listen, when we're lowly, we're constantly looking up. If we aren't anchored to Jesus, he's saying, it's so, so very easy for us to nurture the seeds of envy in our hearts. You know, a guy by the name of Joseph Epstein, he's a writer I, I really enjoy, he wrote a little book called Envy, and I love the first sentence of his book. This is what he says right out of the gates when he, he was asked to write this book on envy, and he wrote this, Of the seven deadly sins, only envy is no fun at all, right? And you start to think about that, and you think, yeah, well, lust and anger and gluttony and even slothfulness have their momentary pleasures, right? But envy just makes you miserable, right? Makes you anxious that you're missing out on something in life. Makes you angry at the happiness of others around you. Despairing that you don't matter in life. Keeping you miserably self-absorbed thinking about what you don't have. Only envy is no fun at all. And Epstein, very insightfully, I think, in his book, he called envy a kind of Rorschach test. And you know the Rorschach test where the inkblot test where you see this ink blot on a piece of paper, and then you're supposed to tell the psychologist what you think that ink blot is. And then from that, they're supposed to be able to discern your deepest, darkest, you know, motives and desires and all of that. And so Epstein, he offers this Rorschach test when he writes this. He writes, 
Tell what you envy, and you will reveal a great deal about yourself. See, if you feel lowly and poor and insignificant, and you're looking up at the world, and you're, you're starting to sense in your life the bitterness and the anxiety and the anger and the resentment that's mounting in your heart, you have to ask yourself, who or what are you envious of? Because it's when you tell what you envy that you will, reveal, you will reveal a great deal about yourself. You think, if I only had more of this, then I would be happy. Then I would feel secure. If I only received this kind of recognition, then I would feel significant and important and like I had value. If I only had this or that, then I would finally be able to be content in my life, right? That's how we think about it. And for some of you, some of you in this room, you really are struggling to keep the lights on. And I know that. And you feel yourself to be at the very bottom of society with nowhere to look but up. But what about the majority of us who aren't? Um, Here's a very interesting statistic, right? If you're part of middle-class America, um, you're actually in the wealthiest 1% of people who have ever lived on the face of the earth. And for like a minute, that will challenge our vantage point, right? And we'll maybe even feel a little bit guilty about that. But I promise you this, if you give it just a day, it will go away. That guilt will go away, and you'll start to think about how poor you are. And here's why. Because I don't care who you are in life. There's always someone you can look up to. Right? Always someone that has more. Because if you earn $50,000, you know somebody who makes $75,000. And if you make $100,000, you feel poor next to the guy who makes $150,000. Millionaires feel poor next to billionaires, Right? You make it to the beach for a vacation only to come back and find out that your neighbor wants you to watch their cat while they go to the Cayman Islands. Somebody is always going to have more. There's always somebody to look up to. You succeed in your career and you achieve a certain level of recognition. There are always more rungs to climb on that ladder for you. Envy doesn't confine itself to one social class. Do you feel lowly in life, insignificant and unimportant? You have to tell what you envy because that will reveal a great deal about your heart, where you have put your hope, and what you have anchored your life to. So second, let's move on and talk about the thing that's not so easy to see, something that begins to challenge our vantage point a little bit more, and that's how wealth can be a trial. Earlier this this year, um, a few months ago, there was this fascinating article in the Atlantic Journal called why luck matters more than you think. Um, And the author wrote about uh, this term that psychologists use called hindsight bias. Um, And it's a description of our tendency after the fact to think that an event or outcome in life um, was actually predictable when it wasn't. Um, Okay, and so this particular bias this author is writing about, um, it, it operates with special and unique force when we are unusually successful in life, okay? And if the word luck causes you problems for some reason, um, listen, think about it this way. It's very easy, right, for us after a successful outcome to think that we achieved that because of how talented or how smart or how hard we worked in life. And the thing that we don't credit is providence, right? What family we were born into, 
what race we, we are, what country, what zip code, what education was available to us, what opportunities just happened to come our way. All the things in life that you had zero control or influence over. We don't see the thousand little factors of providence that lined up just so in order for us to be successful in life. Michael Lewis, um, some of you read his books or have read his books. Uh, He's an incredibly successful author. He's the guy who wrote the book about the blind side, the kid uh, that went to high school down the street at Briarcrest and made it into the NFL. Um, I just skipped right over Ole Miss. Sorry, Ole Miss people. He did go to Ole Miss. Um, You know, other, he, he wrote a lot of books, um, and a lot of books that uh, became movies, right? Uh, not only The Blind Side, but Moneyball um, and um, The Big Short most recently. But his career was really launched with his first book, and his first book was called Liar's Poker. And in that book, he describes the reinvention of Wall Street in the 1980s, and he has written very candidly about the luck, right, involved in his success. Um, I want you to listen to a little something that he wrote. He wrote, all of a sudden people were telling me I was a born writer. This was absurd. Even I could see that there was another, more true narrative with luck as its theme. What were the odds of being seated at that dinner next to that Salomon Brothers lady, of landing inside the best Wall Street firm to write the story of the age, of landing in the seat with the best view of the business? This isn't just false humility, he writes. It's false humility with a point. My case illustrates how success is always rationalized. People really don't like to hear success explained away as luck, especially successful people. As they age and succeed, people feel their successes, their, their successes were somehow inevitable. In other words, hindsight bias, it is constantly at work in our lives, trying to reinterpret the events and the outcomes of life, right, as a product of our, our ability or our effort or our self-sufficiency. And from James' vantage point, we're coming back to James now, from James' vantage point, this is the real trial of wealth and riches. They glory in their pride, their ability, their self-sufficiency without realizing their utter frailty, that their glory is like the fading beauty of a flower is what James wrote. Jesus, he told this parable, extremely convicting parable in Luke chapter, uh, Luke chapter 12. Look it up later today and read it. Jesus told this story about a farmer, and he worked really, really hard, and he stored up all his goods, right? And he had this great portfolio this is extremely healthy 401k. Um, and so he kicked up his feet to enjoy his success and the good life that he had created for himself, right? And Jesus gave us insight in that parable into that man's heart because he showed us this man talking to himself. And this is what he said in Luke chapter 12. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But in that parable, God called that man a fool because that very night his life would be required of him. He lost James' vantage point, right? That he was just a flower of the grass whose beauty would very quickly fade and fall. And Jesus in that parable, when you read it, 
He's warning the listeners. He's saying, be on guard. Right? What, what does be on guard mean? That means be hypervigilant. That means be suspicious of your wealth. That means that you are to be alert and you're to pay careful attention to your motives and your attitudes regarding your riches. Why do you have to be so on guard? Why would Jesus… He doesn't tell us ever to be on guard against lust and adultery. Because if you commit adultery, you most likely know that you're committing adultery. But he's saying be on… That was kind of funny, but um, listen, I hate it when you don't laugh at my jokes. Um, But uh, anyway, um, but listen, you have to be on guard. You have to be on guard against covetousness and enviousness in your hearts. You have to be on guard and suspicious against wealth because it sneaks up on you, right? Because the greatest trial in life is for you to for you not to feel that you have any trials in life. The greatest trouble in life is for you to feel like you have no trouble in life. The greatest spiritual trial in your life is to have no spiritual trials. Wealth can be a dangerous trial because it can sneak up on us, Jesus was saying. It can sneak up on us and catch us off guard and unsuspecting. I've used this illustration before, but um, one day I was watching the National Geographic channel and they were videoing this cute little red salamander thing, and it was in this creek, and it was flowing along in the creek. It was really just getting carried along in the current of that, that creek, and it was just harmless looking, right? It's a little salamander. It's pliable and soft and tiny, no sharp teeth. I mean, it didn't look aggressive at all, just, you know, carried along in the current, right? And, um, and then the camera, as you're watching this little salamander make its way down the creek, the camera shows you this giant frog on the bank, um, and the salamander's making his way towards the frog. And then in like just a moment, this frog just pounces on the salamander and swallows it whole, just one gigantic gulp, right? And it's amazing. It's awesome. It's on YouTube. I, I looked it up this past week just to see it again, because they showed it like, you know, it's HD TV, and they're showing it slow motion, just pouncing, devouring, all that kind of stuff. And um, and so what happened after the frog swallowed this cute little salamander is that it crawled up on the bank, back on the bank of the creek. And within 30 seconds, that frog was dead. <laughs> See, and the narrator comes on and explains that, oh, how embarrassing, getting text messages while I'm preaching. Um, <laughs> but uh, I've, my watch, I had to keep the time. Where are we? Um, okay, we're good. Um, listen. So, so 30 seconds later, the frog call, crawls up on the, on the bank, and he's dead. And the narrator comes on to explain that what this frog didn't realize is that this particular kind of salamander, it, on its skin is this coating of poison, so that the moment the frog takes that frog in, or the moment that frog takes that salamander in, it's dead. Um, and then here's the interesting thing. So 30 seconds later, it's dead. Ten seconds after that, the dead frog's mouth opens, and the salamander pushes its way out of the frog's mouth and gets back into the creek and is carried along in, in, in the current. Just, just a day in the life of this little salamander, right? Um, so the question is, my question to you is, are you on guard? Are you suspicious enough of your success in life, of your wealth in life? Have you seen how little you actually have to do with your success 
and your wealth. If you can't see that, James is saying, you're like that frog. You are blind and you are unaware of his vantage point on life's trials. Because the greatest trial is to feel that you have no trials. You've swallowed the poison and you don't even know it. And since this poison, I think, is so hard for us to see, just like it was for the frog, right? Let me give you one indicator, a, a litmus test, if you will, to tell you if you've taken the, the poison in. And we'll come back to that Atlantic Journal article. And I don't have the time to get into these details, but the author cites a number of um, studies by social scientists over the past 20 years. And here's what they consistently find in these studies. Those who see their lives from the vantage point of gratitude, or, or to use the author's own words, right, those who see their success and their wealth as a product of luck in their lives, in study after study that they have done, they are 25% more generous with their money, with their time, and their attitudes towards others than those who think they are successful because of their hard work um, or their talent. And surely you've heard these statistics before, right? People who make under $25,000 a year, they give away 4% of their income, while those who make $100,000 or more give away less than 1% of their income. James is telling us why that is. So here's the litmus test. How generous are you? And if you aren't being generous, what does that reveal about your vantage point in life, about your wealth and your success. Okay, the last thing, and this is the most important thing, how to use the gospel vantage point in our trials. I'm going to limit myself here to two big applications. There are others, but I really think these are the main ones here. So here it is. James is telling us in this passage how to use the gospel vantage point to see farther than the present. And he's also telling us that the gospel vantage point lets us see life through the lens of the gospel paradox. Okay, so the gospel vantage point lets us see farther than the present. There is a day coming, James is telling us, when the lowly will be lifted up and the high will be brought low. He tells us in verse 12, right, he wants us to look farther than the present because, the present because he's writing that we need to see the crown of life that's offered to those who love God, right? I, I, I think I'm personally, I think I might be having a midlife, um, I'm going to call it realization, not a crisis. Um, I turned 42 in a few weeks, and a few weeks ago I went to the clinic because of this terrible pain radiating down my legs, and I was told that um, because of my degenerative disc disease, the vertebrae was clamping down on that, whatever that is, the nerves or whatever, and it's causing all this pain, right? Which I was like, oh, that's awesome. Um, I went... Um, I went to see for my annual checkup to my physician, and I had been working out hard for four months, running like four times a day. And I was like, doctor, how much, how much weight did I lose? One pound. I mean, 10 years ago, I would have lost 20 pounds with that amount of effort, right? Um, my doctor keeps talking about my cholesterol level. It's becoming increasingly challenging for me to read uh, fine print. And basically, the headline of my life <laughs> feels like, you're falling apart. Um, it's over, right? Um, thank you very much. Uh, but look, you know, if you add to that, um, see, it's not just that, but when you get to this age, I, I do think you start thinking about all the things that you thought you would get to, but are starting to realize, I might never have time to get to those things. 
right? And so you started to think about all the places you wanted to go and, and, and all the different things you wanted to see and realize that you're probably not going to get there. You're probably not going to see them in this life. Now listen, the gospel vantage point I'm telling you is what can keep us and even me at a midlife realization without it becoming a full-blown crisis in our lives, right? Because the crisis comes when you cannot see farther than the present, when all you see are the little bits of life that are irretrievable to you now, that are lost to you now. You think about missed opportunities and missed relationships, and you start counting up all the losses and regrets of your life because that's all you can see. But listen, God has promised, and James says this, He has promised a crown of life to those who love Him. He has promised a new heavens and a new earth to His people. He promises a day beyond the present when all the sadness will one day come untrue. He promises a day beyond the present when all things will be mended when everything wrong in the world is put right, and if that's true and God assures us that it is, then you aren't going to miss out on anything, right? The future is brighter and fuller and more meaningful and more unimaginably wonderful than you ever dreamed. See, if you can get this gospel vantage point, I think James is saying you can remain steadfast in your trials, unmoved and unshaken Because you know that this life is not all there is. Listen, and it's a gospel vantage point because this is the message and the proclamation of the resurrection. Right? Jesus lost everything. He was homeless and impoverished. Foxes had holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay His head. He lost His friends and His reputation. He was fastened naked to a cross and crucified. He lost his life. But then he rose again to assure us that if we come to him, even death, even death will be softened to a sleep from which we awake. I mean, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but when you read through the Bible and they talk about Christians dying, they always talk about it by saying they fell asleep. I mean, everywhere they say that. Because this life is not all there is. One day, someday, if we're anchored to Jesus, we will wake up to the new heavens and the new earth. And we'll have the life we were always meant to have. Second thing, the gospel vantage point also lets us see life through the lens of paradox. This, I think, is the real game changer. You know, remember when you were a kid and a little kid and somebody gave you those sunglasses that had that red tint or that green or blue tint to it and you'd put them on and it was really cool when you were a kid, right? They probably didn't protect you from anything. They were probably like magnifying UV rays into your eyeballs. But, but they, were, they were cool as little kids because once you put them on, the whole world looked green. The whole world looked red. The whole world looked blue, right? Listen, The gospel vantage point, it gives you a lens of paradox like that, that changes the look of everything. It allows you to see everything differently, lets you see how two things that seem to be an absolute contradiction can both be true and at the same time. Verse 9, let the lowly brother boast 
in his exaltation. He's saying if you're facing loss, poverty, and insignificance, if you feel like you don't matter, then you need to look at yourself through the lens of the gospel paradox. Because if you do, you can take pride in your exalted status. Right? What exalted status is he talking about here? That you are a son, that you are a daughter of the king, and so great is his love for you that he, de- he delights in you so much that he considers you to be such a treasure that he would send his only begotten son to die for you so that he would be with you forever. Listen, the paradox, though you are poor, James is saying, If you can see your life through the gospel, you will see that you are rich. The gospel vantage point is what tells you your true value, your true worth. And then he tells the rich in verse 10 to boast not in his riches, but in his humiliation. Right? What should you do if you are wealthy and successful? James says you need to start seeing your life through the gospel vantage point. See the gospel paradox. Though you are rich and though you are important and though you feel significant, you need to see that you're just a creature. Though you might be the most important king, the most powerful emperor, the, you know, whatever, the powerful ruler that ever lived in the world, right? James is saying you have no more value than the poorest beggar who ever walked the face of the earth. To save you, God himself still had to reach into the dust to save you. Can you see how James is telling you to use the gospel paradox, the gospel, this gospel lens in your life, how the gospel gives you a particular vantage point, no matter your circumstances in life, no matter your trial? G.K. Chesterton is a favorite author of mine from late 19th, early 20th century, um, and he wrote that And he loved paradox. It was everywhere in his writing, right? And he gave this definition of a paradox. He said, a paradox is a truth standing on its head, shouting for attention. The poor rich, the rich poor, right? It makes you pay attention because you have to ask, how can the poor be rich and how can the rich be poor? Chesterton wrote that the cross at its heart has a collision and a contradiction, and because it has a paradox at it, because it has a paradox at its center it can grow without changing it opens its arms to the four winds a signpost for free travelers can you see your life from the vantage point of the cross because if you can you will see your true poverty right to rescue you nothing less than the death of god's own son could do it but If you can see your life from the vantage point of the cross, you will also, at the very same time, see that God so loves and so values you that He Himself was willing and glad to give His life to have you forever. James could have chosen from any of life's contrasts to illustrate this, right? Loneliness and companionship, a long married life to unexpected bereavement, health and sickness, joy and sorrow, hope fulfilled and hope disappointed because we experience the gamut. But he chose this. And all it is is an illustration to say to you that no matter where you find yourself in life, what you need is the gospel vantage point. To see farther than the present and to see through the lens of the gospel paradox. Let's pray together.
Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You, praise You for the good news of the gospel, that Jesus has come into this world, that He lived, He died, He was raised again, so that we could be assured that He will return one day to make this world the way it should be, to make us the way we should be. Father, we pray that You would give us Your Spirit in order that we would learn to see life through the lens of the gospel, and we would see our poverty, that we would also see our wealth, that we would see our brokenness, but that we would also see the riches that we have in Jesus, that we would know our fallenness, but also know the great love of Jesus. Father, we pray that this would help us in all of life's troubles that You bring into our lives, and that You would use those troubles, those trials, the hardness of life to grow us up and further into the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen.